I'm Christy Bourne. And I'm Rainier Wild. Together, we're investigating the mysteries of love and relating. We get gritty and dig deep into why love is the tie that binds us together. And also drives us to our knees. This is our story. This is your story. This is Love Like Hell. It was good until it wasn't. Then it never was. She had never really understood him. And he never truly had been a friend to her. And they had never been happy. Not in the shimmering or glittering way that two people can truly be happy. They had never, ever even loved each other. The tidal wave of the present eroded every shred of dignity that the past had held. She and he were left standing on their own islands of grief and despair. The familiar terrain of lovers who no longer bear witness to one another. Nothing lasts, and when the end comes, it takes everything you once had. The mind narrows to a focal point and then replicates this perspective in every direction. We forget so easily. We forget. Yet reality contains the miraculous and the monstrous and the monotonous and the gritty and the glorious and the beautiful and the brutal. The time she didn't fall asleep like she wanted to, but stayed awake beside him so he could drive all through the night. And the way he would tell the joke the same way he always told but it got funnier with each telling. And the pictures on the wall of when they, when they cared and making dinner together while drinking boxed wine and the way she listened, or at least he thought she listened. And in the end, it doesn't matter if she did or if it only seemed like she did because we never know the difference anyway and his smell after the shower, and her breath in the morning, and all those nights up with crying babies, then six kids, then teenagers out past curfew, and the way his hand curled over hers at her grandmother's funeral. And she was sure no one else really knew what it meant to walk a mile in her shoes, except him and the certainty by which they would assure one another that they'd figure it out, no matter the difficulty. And what boxes do you pack those truths into? Where do you stow these treasures? How delicately are we willing to wrap them in order to preserve their hidden meanings and deeper knowings? It is so much easier to let them be swept away in the same story the lovers have told since Shakespeare. It was good until it wasn't. And then it never was. Pain is nearsighted. You know, we can only see what's straight ahead. But reality isn't a one-way street. So the challenge becomes, can you remember rightly? Can you remember both sides? That's really the question of memory when it comes to getting through these relational crises, whether it's an ending or the ending of what you once knew. So much of the task of reestablishing a relationship after there has been an ending or an ending of what we once knew is to remember rightly. Part of what I mean is that pain is nearsighted. We have these experiences where our mind focuses down to a single point, pain, and then sees that or replicates that in each and every direction. So it becomes that sense of, well, it was always painful, wasn't it? It was always bad, surely. It was never good. I never trusted him. She was never here for the right reasons. 
And so the real task becomes, can I honor what was true then and there, while at the same time taking in and accessing and integrating new information here and now? This idea of remembering rightly is kind of uh, a tricky one. You know, our memories are based on stories, something that we hear over time, something that we've experienced, but a story that reinforces it. And the difficult thing with these stories is often that, um, you know, when you experience, I would say, a surprise like infidelity, it is shocking. And some people have likened that shock, right, to a traumatic event in which everything that we had imagined that we knew about life itself is now turned upside down. And a lot of times when we experience that surprise, that shock, our bodies don't do what they normally do. And this way, we don't know how to make sense of it. It is a story that we were chugging along on and then all of a sudden the table is turned and we're saying, I didn't anticipate this story. I don't know how to make sense of it. Where's my storyline? And there goes our memory. Um, Our nervous system is heightened. It's this automatic nervous system that says either I freeze in this situation, I get out of this situation, or I fight in this situation. And memories are hard to make an encounter when we are in this state of kind of chaotic, traumatic experience. We're in survival mode. And from that survival mode, we're making sense of it as best we can. And again, we're interpreting the past through the lens of the present. And that's one of the really important things to understand about uh, what we call memory or how we understand memory. We tend to think of memory as history books. I don't actually think that's a bad comparison, but let's talk about history books, shall we? History books are written from a certain standpoint. Friedrich Nietzsche said, every point of view is a view from a point. So for instance, the history books that I read talked about the heroic conquest of Western America by these intrepid pioneers and these amazing people who settled this wild and barbarous land. It talked about um, really low-level scavenger nomads, little better than cavemen who existed there and had existed there, wallowing in their ignorance for thousands and thousands of years until the great white saviors came along with their Bible and their beads. That wasn't all that long ago that we were still thinking in these terms, where we were thinking that the annihilation of the great herds of buffalo was like a necessary outcome, of course, of these railroads that we needed by God. I can remember, you know, in college, beginning to be exposed to a history that showed a different perspective from a different frame that talked about instead of conquest from a positive, it talked about genocide. It talked about colonization. It talked about the annihilation of people groups and then the re-education of those people groups and the brainwashing of those people groups and then the, the subjugating them on small and then smaller and then smaller parcels of reservation land. Taking amazingly complex cultures and reducing them to a dust bowl. That's a history book. Every point of view is a view from a point. So you actually have to think of memory a little bit like that, that we have memories not from the place of where they happened, but from the place where we're standing right now. That's also the power of a picture, right? Like we see a picture of a time in space and we insert what we remember about it, even though we might not have an accurate interpretation. As a kid, when I look at a picture, I probably felt different than as an adult looking at the picture now and remembering into it. Um, This concept that you're talking about is I'm looking from this point of where I'm at and I'm interpreting onto that experience. 
you know, you talked about history books, the way that we learned is different than the way our parents learned and the way that our children are learning right now from a different uh, standpoint in history and the perspective. And so, of course, it changes over time. We're standing in this precipice and this scenario in which infidelity was revealed. And at that point, I can very much remember from that perspective, I couldn't remember a good past because in that moment, everything that I thought I knew was no longer available to me. If this isn't good, how could the past have been good either? Here's what I love about indulgence. Indulgence is a course for everyone. It is for the let down, left out, and left behind in all of us. It is for the people who long for love, who have love, and who want love to flourish dynamically in their current existence. This is for everybody. I'm a pretty big fan of that. This is an eight-week digital immersion. It's about building a fireproof relationship. You'll get to work with me and Rainier. Yeah, we teach all the principles on lighting the spark, reigniting the fires of intimacy, or creating an inferno of passion. See what I did there? All the analogies right there about fire. (laughs) That was really good. You're really good with words. Um, But for us, this isn't like haphazard. This is being intentional about the kind of relationship that you want. And we think relationships should be fiery or on fire, but not burned to the ground. Yeah. Indulgence isn't really a program. It's a way of life. And in this eight-week course, which is really about self-mastery in relationship to others, you learn all kinds of skills and techniques and frameworks by which you can approach relationships if you're single, being able to rekindle that spark if you're together with someone, and taking good to great in the existing relationships you have. Yeah, so we really talk about authentic expression. We show how to show empathy and validation in relationships, how to have more curiosity and imagination, and we talk about the erotic and intimacy. You mean basically the places where relationships fall apart? Yeah, we try to enhance those places. Instead of them being a pitfall, we really want to zone in on them and say, How do we make these aspects better in relating? So this is an eight-week digital immersion. You get eight incredible on-demand videos that have fantastic content. You also get four live questions and answers with us, as well as the opportunity for for, uh, bonus one-on-one meeting directly with Christy and I. This is an exciting opportunity for people who long for great connection. You also get the community of peers who are talking about our experiences and expressing what's going on in relationship. This is a wisdom community also where we learn from the experiences of one another. And I couldn't be more excited to have that. There's nothing better than having people around you that want the same thing. People that are dedicated to not just having good relationships, but having great relationships and waking up to their uh, connection in conscious ways. Relationships often fall asleep so easily. And in this program, we're saying, we're not going to give you steps. We're going to allow you to wake up to who you are and how you're relating to people in your life. So if you're interested in indulgence, why don't you go over to the link in the bio in the show notes here or in the bio over at Instagram uh, under Rainier Wild. And you can access the application to be a part of that. Get involved now. It is, in fact, space limited situation and we want you to be a part of it. That's something that you desire to do. We really, really value this and we want you to start now. This is going to be an amazing time starting at the end of July and going for eight weeks. Let's get on fire here. Do you remember looking back in those encounters and those spaces and thinking um, it was bad? Was there a sense of, of uh, well, you know, if it wasn't good, it must have been bad? I think what I thought was love, you know, love doesn't feel like infidelity. So if it wasn't love, if you weren't here with me, if you weren't... Um, uh, faithful to me and our family, then then you were never 
faithful to me and our family. And so it distorted my vision from that point. Um, I couldn't trust what the, what the past held as much as I was seeing what was happening in the future. This is one of the consequences of, uh, of lying, actually, and of falsifying the, the text of reality as it's going on. It creates kind of an untenable or untrustable narrative when the truth comes out. Um, what you're talking about is not that you interpreted reality as, well, it was all bad, just I don't know what it was anymore. Yeah, that's a really great point is that if I didn't know what reality was, how can I anticipate the future and how can I trust the past? And so you have kind of this self-doubt and that idea of shaky ground. I have no idea. and I actually don't know how to construct a story anymore. Yeah, and of course, this isn't, purely located with just traumatic memories or, or hardships, such as what we're talking about, we tend to interpret the past, as we've been saying, always through the lens of the present. So even like during the good times, if times are very, very good right now, maybe we've got some money, we've got some time on our hands, we've got some vacation, we can look backwards and go, every road led me here, baby. Oh, wasn't this... Wasn't this so good? And every road leads to, it was all stepping stones. And doesn't this feel so nice? And we can see that there was a path that got us here, wasn't? Because today is good. And so we can look backwards and go, okay, all those really, really hard things that I thought then and there, they make sense now. We're using the present to determine the meaning we give the past. Yeah. I was going to echo that exact same statement in terms of meaning. We're always deriving meaning in those situations. So in the past, it's like, oh, the meaning is that it was never good. The meaning was is that I can't trust this. The meaning was like, I can gather all of those. And then in a new space, I'll gather a new set of data. And it's a really disservice to um, what actually is. Yeah, now you're delineating here between my story about reality and reality and that they're actually not the same thing. I remember I was reading um, a really phenomenal book on story creation. It was actually to, to screenwriters, Robert McKenna's book, Story. And he defines the word truth. And he defines it differently than the word fact. Hmm. Fact is what happened. Truth is the meaning I give to it, why it happened, right? The fact is the light went red. A car ran the red light. It got hit by another car. Facts. Truth. The truth is the meaning I assign to it. Well, some dumb kid looking at his phone hauled through and he, it's my attempt to connect the dots. At the end of the day, as humans, all we have are those attempts to connect the dots unless we're very vigilant and only see or look for the phenomenon themselves. Why would we want to do that, though? Why would we want to look at the phenomenon versus the stories we give it? Why would that even be important, I wonder? Well, I'm thinking about facts, and facts are a lot less um, emotionally driven. Um, they're a lot less personal at times. When I look at just what the facts are and I don't entangle myself in the story, uh, then I can have a clear and rational mind around it and I can see it. But we rarely uh, don't tangle things up. Uh, we come with our interpretations. We come with our, we've talked about our vulnerability factors. We come with all of this kind of set of knowledge. And pretty soon the event is not this, just the event. It's everything around it. So to get clear, facts are really, really helpful. They allow me to not get so personally attached to it and see it for what it is. As soon as my story starts weaving into it, then it gets pretty confusing and pretty emotional right off the bat. Yeah, well, let's think about how we construct reality. Well, there's reality. There's the experience itself, uh, which is at the phenomenological level. It's at the level of experience. It's taste, it's touch, it's smell. It's, it's our five senses. It's the world that we can see and observe. 
right? We can actually experience this world in a tactile and tangible way. We also can observe our thoughts about the world. We also can observe our emotions and, our, and, and how we're organized or wired. That is the phenomenological world. That's the event horizon reality. But we can't stay there. Our, our psyche literally can't stay there. It's like a rushing river. And so what we do is we take a snapshot of that, of that moment. We take a snapshot so that we can slow time down, so that our assessing mind can have the time it needs to, to form an understanding, to make a, a set of decisions. So we take a, a very fast snapshot of reality. In fact, our mind is almost always taking these photographs. And it's creating sort of like a, a picture book that we can reference so that we can make decisions. So we take these pictures and then we slow that down and we, and we make decisions and we think we're making decisions or interpretations off of reality, but we're not. We're making decisions and interpretations off of where the cameraman was standing and what he was able to get in the frame and what they were able to actually see when they were looking at and the filters. And you see, there's actually... Um, a whole set of criteria that go into that picture that has very little to do with the reality it was trying to take the picture of. We make decisions and interpretations. We form our ideas about what truth is, not based on reality, but based on our interpretations of that reality, our representation of it. I love that when you're talking about it, I'm thinking about, for me, a story that surprised me was when I, I think I, I must've been in high school or older when I had learned that um, when my parents conceived me, they were quite surprised. And my whole life, I had this great interpretation. Uh, I had three older brothers, I still do. And I'm the only girl. And I just felt so special in my home in terms of like, oh, we got the girl, you know? And later I learned that the pregnancy was a surprise, that my parents were like, ah, what do we do with her? We haven't had... Uh, a girl before. Uh, there was this essence. I was like, oh, my interpretation of who I was was different than another story. Now, we do this all the time. And so, um, by the way, I know my parents love me, but it's so interesting that we do this all the time. We have an interpretation not based on the reality of the situation. Huzzah. Oh, we're pregnant shoot, we didn't know that was going to happen. And people live their lives out being stuck in the interpretation and it's so debilitating. They can't shake it and, um, and to create something new. And we just keep doing that over and over and over. So that's an important thing to kind of keep in check. So when we think about how we form memory, we actually form memory sort of like an editor of all of those pictures coming together and putting together a slideshow. So the editor says to the photographer who captured the moment with his photographs, thank you very much. I've got it now. And now I'm going to organize and collate it according to the agenda of the situation I find myself in. So as you can see, now we're many steps removed from the event horizon of the phenomenological experience itself. There was, there was the phenomenon, and then there was the photograph, the representation of it, and then there was the interpretation of it, and then there was the, the correlation of it, the bringing it together in such a way where it makes sense and can be applied to my current reality. Now, we're really, really good at this, actually. Like, I, I, I don't want to falsify and, and, and us to think, oh my God, I'm, I'm just living in complete unreality. I and mean, this is what I, I jokingly like to say is the mystery of the airplane. I mean, for as much as we can't know, we still send 10 cans through the air from one side of the globe to the other. We clearly have learned a lot about the world. We know a lot about the world and we can know and trust a lot of the principles that we know. This is fantastic, right? Let's not erode everything and say we can know absolutely nothing. We can know an awful lot. Our memories are actually pretty stable. That having been said, we have to take them with a grain of salt. The grain of salt is we interpret our memories of the past through our present reality. 
Yeah. And in that reality, for me, love was on the line. Right? Love was on the line and everything that I understood about love wasn't being represented in that moment. So I put all kinds of interpretations. I was never loved, right? This isn't love. And so I have some really beautiful memories of you and I early on, you know, um, in friendship and in dating, but I couldn't access those. That wasn't a place that I could look on with fondness and think, oh yeah, that was the beginning of love. To me, everything was in question. You know, did I, were we ever in love? Could it have been? And if so, how in the world did we get here? I remember this, this time, or I think at least I remember it. I'm trying to, I'm trying to piece it together. You had really wanted me to go back to work. And our kids were little. And our youngest was just a little baby. And you were really intent that I should start my practice up again. We kind of got into some heated conversations around it. Because I didn't really feel like I was ready. I wasn't really ready to leave our kids and to open back up into the world of work. But you really wanted me to. You're really leaning in. So I guess I was really wondering, were you letting me know that I needed, I needed to work because you weren't going to be around, that I was going to have to figure out how to support the family? I mean, as I'm talking about it, that makes so much sense. Of course you would want me to go back to work. Of course I would need to figure out how to support myself. No wonder why you were adamant about it. You were not there. You were having an affair. And so I needed to figure out how to make it on my own without you. You were setting me up. That was it, wasn't it? Yeah, it's so interesting hearing that particular take as I remember it, because I do remember being adamant and I remember it being because of our bank account. Um, Could that have been a convenient story I was telling myself at the time? Well, maybe. See, here's something that I've learned to be careful of in the light of everything we've just talked about, which is on one hand, If you need to remember rightly and be careful not to follow the wild dog of memory down every alley it leads down, I need to do the same, right? Like I'm inherently gratified to look backwards and have the most generous interpretation on what happened then and there. So I can hear you say that and and say to myself, oh, well, no, you've got me all wrong. I I just, we needed the money. It was... No, this had nothing to do with any of that other stuff that was going on. I was being totally genuine, which my mind believes to be the case. I'm being sincere when I say that. But also, I have to call that into question. I don't actually know. The reality is, I remember it a certain way. I give meaning to the events of that moment a certain way. But the truth is, today, I'm pretty gratified by remembering it that way. One of the things that you've told me is that no one's usually a villain in their own story. And, you know, I think about that. And sometimes it's hard to sit and remember rightly about where we were at that time. And so that honest piece that says, I don't believe that's true to my knowledge, but I'm not above it. And that in its own way has a way of, you know, taking some personal responsibility, even if that intent wasn't what it was back then. It's so interesting because as I was recalling that memory, emotion really came up for me. So that must have really been this deep-seated kind of thought behind it is that like, I needed to really figure out how to take care of myself. Um, And from that perspective, like there was no fact checking. I didn't have the ability to do that. I think that was a deep seated kind of belief or interpretation um, of that experience. 
Yeah. And, and I love actually, even as I'm hearing us talk about it right now, one of the generosities that we're both giving each other is we're holding this idea of the facts of the matter pretty loosely, right? Well, I remember this and this is how it was. That's absent in the dialogue that's happening right now. Instead, we're saying, you know, my recollection is, and I could imagine that it would have felt like to you. And if I'm honest about what my motives were then, what we're trying to do is we're trying to create a landscape where your experience makes sense. We're not necessarily trying to reestablish the idea of what happened. We're not attorneys prosecuting the case here. Instead, we're trying to acknowledge and affirm the reality of the present situation. So actually, even as I heard you recall that situation with the emotion, I was far more interested in the emotions that were coming up right now in this moment than actually this idea of the memory. And I think that's one of the things that happens in dialogue. We get very, very caught up in the content, very caught up in, aha, this happened and then this happened and then this happened. Yes, 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 yes. There's a person sitting in front of you who's experiencing that thing. And actually, I need to drop into their experience and um, communicate with them about that first and foremost. I think part of that memory for me that brought up emotion, as I remember that conversation being kind of, in some ways, escalated or heated, like we weren't really understanding each other at the time. Like we were in different playing fields, like this was something you needed, this was something I was resistant and kind of back and forth. So I think some of that uh, memory for me was like, we were kind of on different um, grounds about it. So we had disconnection in the moment and then taking the lens of like, oh, was that what was going on that I didn't know about that I couldn't see? And we were having a conflict about something I couldn't see that was going on behind my back. And so that emotion was like, oh, we were having an alternative reality kind of experience. And that's what memory does. And the ability to bring it up today and have this conversation, Desmond Tutu has this great quote that says, without memory, there is no healing, right? Without forgiving, there is no future. So memory in this context makes a lot of sense. Like we're able to go back and say, hey, was that the thing that was going on? Or was that my interpretation from this standpoint, looking back? And we can heal that memory or we can say, I don't know, but I could see how that could have happened. Like, and I can heal from that point and I can actually see each other's perspective to even get to a place of forgiveness if possible. Yeah, I think one of the, one of the things here, uh, there are some linguistic devices that are actually very, very helpful um, that start to rescue you in conversation um, with the person you're with. One of them is the phrase, the story I'm telling, or the story I'm telling myself is. That simple little phrase acknowledges a basic truth, which is my story about reality is not the same as reality. Uh, now, we're not so subjective that we're trying to just editorialize life. We're not just saying, hey, I, I'm a science fiction writer and life is whatever I make it up to be. That's not the case also. We do, in fact, try to strive for objective fact, right? So even as you're communicating these things, I, I want to think back through my thoughts. and I want to go, okay, was that, what was I thinking in that moment? Was I involved with someone else in that moment? Were my motivations um, to have more time or, or was I trying in fact to, to set you up for an eventual, um, end of the relationship? Was that, was that in my thoughts in that moment? I'm really trying my best to conceptualize that. Then taking all of those things that I can gather and glean from the space I'm in today, I'm able to look at you and respond and say, you know, as I sit here and think about it, the story that I'm telling myself is that I wasn't conscious that that's what I was doing. I wasn't consciously trying to push you towards those ends. I don't remember having been aware of that. 
But as I reflect back, that does make sense when I look at those events. So notice here that I'm also trying to validate the fact that your experience is real and has merit. Yeah. And I, and I really did end up working and I really did have lots of doors open for me. And when stuff headed in our way and came up, what was really interesting is I had something to fall back on. And so I maybe even val- uh, validated my story in a lot of ways. So from my perspective, it might've worked out that way, but I really appreciate your ability to say, Hey, there could be some unconscious things that I wasn't aware of. And it's been a while since I've recounted that. And maybe I didn't even remember that story. But sitting with you now, I can really see that and it makes sense to me. And for you and I, that allows, right, this idea of our nervous system to come down to baseline and be with one another in which we're not defensive and we're not fighting for a perspective. We can be um, in it together. And that is really effective. Yeah. If you can house um, your statements in terms of their starting point, which is the photographer. I am the photographer. I am the one who's taking the pictures. I am also the editor, the one who is bringing those interpretations together. So if you can actually start your statements with I... Or, or, or me or my, right? You're acknowledging something. You know, my judgment is, or my perception is, or, you know, in my memory, I can recall. And that is almost always a, a most true way of approaching the past, right? It's to acknowledge that you are the starting point for that experience. It's through my lens I was looking through. My car broke down that night. And the plans that I had made with other people fell through. I could get to your house, and it was just starting to snow. I was so grateful to be walking to your door. I I was grateful that I didn't have to be anywhere else. There was something so comforting about being in your presence. We hadn't formalized any loving connection. I don't even think we had gone on a date yet. It was just comfort. My nervous system was at peace. I got to your house and you suggested that we go on a walk. (laughs) Of course, this pregnant mother-to-be always wanting to walk. And so I was happy to oblige. Not bundled up the best. As I recall, you were far more bundled than I. Mittens. Hat. We set off. The snow doesn't relent. It doesn't stop. We walk across snowy fields. There's a blinking blue light. Turns out we're on an airstrip, walking in the snow, covered airstrip. Then a fort, walking around an old historic monument. Then another road, then another. Did we stop for pizza? Maybe I'm not sure. The snow is piling up. It's dancing on my nose. I look over. Yours is red and pink with cold. It's time to get home, I think. I look down at your hand, covered in a mitten. I want to hold it. The familiarity of a hand comfort with your brown eyes, the easy way you laughed. This felt like home. One of the things that comes to my mind as we're reflecting on memory is that as we're reflecting rightly, there were so many good things about our relationship. 
so many beautiful stories of connection and levity and depth. And oftentimes when we come to the ending of something, whether it's the end of relationship, separation, divorce, um, or a transition in relationship, we're talking about infidelity. That's a transition in relationship. And so it's an end of that chapter. And as we come to endings, uh, there's always a grieving period. And as we think about transitioning to something new, Sometimes we want to glom on to the past and say, oh, it wasn't that bad. Oh, I wish I could just step right back into that. Oh, I really miss it. Esther Perel talks about when we're at the end of something, it's important to write down what were the things that were working and what were the things that were not working. So maybe if I'm tempted to step back into a relationship that I know is not healthy for me, I can remember, hey, These are the facts, not the interpretations. The thing that happened for you and I was that the memories, when they started coming back, they were really beautiful memories. And there was deep connection. And when I could remember rightly, it was something, if we could pivot and create something new, I didn't want to let go of. And that was really important to me. There was so much good in our relationship. And infidelity had clouded that, but it hadn't covered all of it. I love that way you're describing it because I think that uh, there are multiple things that were occurring to how we would look at that situation. The first is there was absolutely new data that you had to take in. You had to assess that your your book of photographs, your memory book, had been incomplete in the photographs that were there. Second, you had to really confront the fact that the new photographs created a new set of interpretations by which you made meaning out of those total memories. And then you had to really look at that interpretation, that meaning, and say, is this in fact the total interpretation I'm willing to or wish to apply to the situation? It created a smudge on the lens of the camera. The ability to see, is there something there that's worth building on? And not all relationships contain that. They've run their route when the data comes back. And again, when you're not in crisis mode, we talked about this a long time ago. When we're in crisis mode, it's not often the best to make decisions when my view is clouded. Uh, Things were no longer in crisis in a lot of ways. And the, the ability to look through and say, ah, there's more to this picture going on and not all of it was despairing or shaky. So so now what? Not all relationships contain that. Absolutely. Relationships should end. Not all relationships should continue. And that's what each person has to do. They have to take you know, stock of what was really there and what's my interpretation and then be able to move forward in the way that suits them. Yeah. And once you come up with that decision, the thing that you build on, the thing that you inevitably um, uh, grow from is the new set of interpretations that you're willing to give that, right? So that you're able to look at that and go, okay, now I see a fuller picture. We had a relationship in which two people were not sharing their truths. They were both hiding experiences and thoughts and emotions. They were both dealing with situations that were largely the remnants of ancient traumas, family of origin stories, woundings, histories, and automated behaviors that greatly impacted. This situation had great impact on me. 
this is now the situation I'm looking at in front of me. What do I want to do with it? Right? What do I want to do with that? And when you look at that situation, you go, okay, now I have a choice to make. Now that I've remembered rightly, okay, there's one piece in here. Wow. They're also really willing and committed to addressing those places. Hmm. Okay, I'm going to take that data into uh, view. I'm going to take this data. And, and what you do is you build the fullest picture you can of not just the interpretative memories, but also the whole scope of what you're looking at. That's what you base the decision off of. Honesty has really given you and I the ability to make decisions and have like freedom of choice. Really difficult to get to the place of honesty. And that's what it requires. A lot of these things that we've talked about, whether it's forgiveness or resentments or memory, is the willingness to look at each of those places with as much honesty as we are aware of. Now, you said this um, aspect before where there's things that are unconscious to us, things that we don't know that we don't know. And over time, we grow into that. But as far as we know, can we bring that honest self? That's what allows the future to change with possibility is the willingness to know. And as we're walking through a memory is if I'm willing to explore that and hold that open, I do have possibilities of working through resentments, of validating the experience that my person or partner had. And then it gives me the option for forgiveness, which leads to a future. Yeah, there's this wonderful song uh, that recently was released by Arcade Fire um, called Unconditional. And I absolutely love this song. It, it was uh, what the, the lead singer wrote for his son who was experiencing some mental health challenges. And there's a number of really great lyrics in it, but one of them that stood out to me said, Look out, kid, trust your mind. But you can't trust it every time. You know, it plays tricks on you. And it doesn't give a damn if you are happy or sad. But if you've lost it, don't feel bad. Because it's all right to be sad. Now, what I love about that, that is actually trust yourself. Really do trust yourself and ask questions right? So much of life is dialectical. So right here, we're, we're both talking about, we're both saying, yeah, okay, you need to trust your instincts and intuitions. You, you can actually look back and remember some things and, oh, wow, man, was I discounting? My, was I gaslighting myself? Oh, okay. I need to trust my mind a little more. Oh, and I also challenge my interpretations. I understand that my story about reality is not the same as reality. Oh, okay. I also now realize that there's unconscious motivators that in the moment I'm not always aware of. Okay. And then I bring all of that into relationship to the present. And I go, uh-huh. What is my present experience that is determining my view of the past? And I bring all of that to my person. That's how I end up showing up as honest with someone. And you and I, when we work with couples, when something flares up, we say, pay attention to it. Pay attention to the flare up. If your body's having an experience, if your mind is telling a story, if your tears come to your eyes, then that's something you should pay attention to. It doesn't make it the truth, right? So we have to check the facts and say, what is this thing I just bumped into? I can ask you, hey, I'm having this experience. I am telling myself this story. Can you help me out here? And if we are in congruence, if we're willing and committed to resolving or um, leaning into the truth, that's the gift we can give each other is helping each other check the facts. So we're not just basing our stories off of interpretations. I still get sentimental. The way we laid on the trampoline till the sun came up how she held her chin with both hands clasped together underneath. 
the earrings she would choose for each special occasion. Her snoring when she drank too much or didn't feel well. The kids we made. Stealing kisses in an open air park. The little dance she did in the night air the first time we made love. How I briskly said we should be getting back. Inside jokes, a fit of laughter, good wine, the kind that only happens once, and you can't ever find the vintage again. The big Ferris wheel, feeling nauseous 20 years later because she's married now to a railroad engineer who says she let herself go. And what does he know about love anyway? And fathers and sons and mothers and daughters and dancing the tango and la boca and getting it wrong and stumbling all over my feet and jogging in place and and being embarrassed because she's laughing and discovering the pizza shop with the best crust in the world and squeezing your hand as if I was rounding home base at the World Series and feeling you ride me, wrapping me in your softness and short walks that became endless adventures and the terror of the burning fires bursts of unexpected snowstorms and waking to you and dreaming to you and being separate but never at all and wondering if we'd made it and wondering if we'd make it and wondering if we'd make it after all. Life's a funny thing. At the time, the moments all seemed sequential, distinct like a movie from 15 to 40. But when I look back, it's not really like that. It's a dream that upon waking from, you remember suddenly and all at once, but then forget with each passing minute until each distinction is gone. And there is just a sense that remains. Thank you for listening to this episode of Love Like Hell. We appreciate your support so much. Listen, would you do us a small favor? If you love the show, will you leave a fabulous five-star review? And don't forget to share this with all your friends. Okay. Well, until next week, I'm Rainier. And I'm Christy. Live like mad and love Love like like hell. Love like hell. That that was my signature. (sighs) 